folks, and welcome to Christ in Every Word, a podcast of the Concordia Bible Institute, housed on the beautiful campus of Concordia University, Wisconsin. This is your opportunity to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures with me, Dr. Brian German, Associate Professor of Theology here at the University and the Director of the Concordia Bible Institute. We're making our way through Christianity in the book of Genesis. Where do we see the person and work of Christ and, by extension, our life in him as head to the body, to use the language of the Apostle Paul? If these texts bear witness to him, remember how Jesus spoke about this, these are they which testify of me. Everything written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And our life is in him, in him we live and move and have our being, then these accounts in Genesis are not just ancient Near Eastern one-offs. These actually constitute what it means to be a Christian. How is it that these, uh, again, seemingly old, outdated, ancient, uh, Semitic-sounding stories say something, bear witness, testify to Christ and our life in him throughout uh, the life of the church of all times and places. Last time we took a look at chapter 27, Isaac blessing Jacob. Jacob as uh, Yaakov, uh, a cheater, a deceiver. He takes by the heel. He steals a blessing. Esau is upset. It's interesting at the I don't think I mentioned this at all at the last I'm uh, last podcast. So it's interesting the end of chapter 27 ends with this business of Rebecca saying to Isaac, "I loathe my life because of the Hittite women." Now that just sounds like I mean where did this come from? We just had this, you know, "Who are you, my son?" Isaac can't see very well and Jacob, you know, disguises himself with the hair on his neck and hands and so on. We just had all this, and all of a sudden, Rebecca, at the end of this, says, I can't stand life because of Hittite women. Now, what does that have anything to do with anything? If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? It's an amazing thing. Is it just about marriage? You can go back and listen to the one for Genesis chapter 6. God sees that the sons of God are marrying the daughters of men simply because they are attractive. They are pleasing to the eyes, a delight to the eyes. Sound familiar? It's Genesis. It's Eden stuff all over again. It's the original sin spilling out into future successive generations. We all partook of the same sin. In Adam, we have all been one, one huge rebellious man. We're just one single humanity participating in one single sin. And this is the kind of thing that goes on and on throughout the generations, this marriage, this talk of, you see this in Genesis throughout, but then much later, Ezra, even after the captivity, it's a problem. Put away the foreign wives among you. Is it just that they don't like other ethnicities? Um, Well, all throughout the Bible, this marriage metaphor, this talk of intermarriage is uh, a way of getting at spiritual marriage, spiritual infidelity. You see this in Proverbs, in the wisdom literature, in the prophets, God marrying his people, his people whoring after other gods. It's everywhere. And so anytime you hear marriage talk, be cued into how does this bear witness to the spiritual marriage between God and his people, Christ and his church. 
right? In Ephesians 5, that's the marriage. So the marriage talk is all over. And so maybe it's not all that odd after all when Rebecca says, if Jacob now, after having received this tremendous blessing to transmit this blessing of a promised seed to come, chases after other women, what good is my life to me? Take they our lives, good fame, child, and wife. These can all be gone. What What is it? If I mean, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If Jacob goes after another marriage, a marriage that will lead like Solomon into idolatry, what good will my life be to me? And so chapter 28 starts with this. Chapter 28 starts with this business of marriage. Isaac calls Jacob. It's amazing. You know, in the previous chapter, Rebecca and Jacob are kind of, they're instigating this. They're they're partners. And then it's versus uh, Isaac and Esau. Isaac's, you know, he's, I want to taste the game of Esau and I love Esau and this kind of thing. But after that ordeal is complete, um, or that, you know, that the main segment, at least, Isaac then calls Jacob. Now Isaac and Jacob are talking. It's not just the Rebecca Jacob show. Isaac calls Jacob and blesses him and directs him. This is kind of a reaffirmation of the relationship between this father and son, even though, hey, it looked like Isaac um, leaning on his physical eyesight was not seeing well spiritually when it comes to who Esau would be. This is in some sense restored here when Isaac directs him, you must not take a wife from Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paran Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Now, Rebekah had already told him to do this. Hey, Esau hates you now. Get moving. It's interesting that chapter 27 doesn't end with just, and then, Jacob left. He waits for a word from his father. And in this word, he sounds a lot like Abraham. (laughs) He sounds a lot like this promise will be continued now in you. So go up to Laban. God Almighty bless you, make you fruitful and multiply you. This all sounds like Abraham and this all sounds like, well, Adam, fruitful and multiply. The, The one promise to humanity, this promised seed to come, this is, and who will restore all things, fruitful, multiply this old school, return to Eden or restore what was lost in Eden, will now be transmitted through Jacob. And it is super important that he does not entertain false gods, even if it means being exiled, even if it means leaving what is your comfort zone, even if it means going to a, a strange place. This is something Christians get a taste of continually when they find themselves in a particular land or place or context where, hey, there's not a church around. <laughs> or, hey, we're going to have to, I don't know, we're going to have to travel. We're going to have to make some difficult decisions. We're going to have to um, go out of the comfort zone in order to be connected to the things of the Lord, the promises of the Lord, the divine service of the Lord, the word and sacrament of our Lord. Whatever it takes, we must not enter into marriage with these foreign gods. We must not be unequally yoked with that which is hostile to God's promises, 
even if it makes life a little uncomfortable. So Jacob is on the run, and this is consistent with the life, that's why I'm getting into this, the life of God's people of all times and places. This is the church, always in exile. We are strangers here. Heaven is our home. And that's the language Paul uses in Philippians. That's the language for Jacob as well, because now he's going to go way up north, and he's going to have to deal with just being in exile. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sends Jacob away, and he went to Padam Aran, to Laban, the son of Bethuel of the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's, and Esau's mother. Okay, so this is the big theme of our life, and that is you get the promise, and immediately Abe and Sarah go down to Egypt to a place of death. Choose between death and death. That's what life gives you. But do what you got to do to hold on to the good promises of the Lord. You get baptized, and then what? The Spirit kicks you out into the wilderness, quite literally throws Jesus out into the wilderness immediately after he is baptized, just like he does to Christians. They're brought to the font, and then they are kicked out into the wilderness of this world to live uh, in a strange land for but a few years. Heaven is our home. Hold to the promises. Jacob is told to do the same, and he does in uh, quite a miraculous fashion here, we'll see very soon. But right before we go to that, and that's Jacob's dream here with the ladder, and it makes the kiddos books, and we love it, we get the other kind of marriage. So just as chapter 27 talked about basically two different types of ministry, throughout, it's the church of Cain and the church of Abel in chapter 27. This is like justification by, I'm going to go out and hunt and work, um, versus I'm just receiving this blessing. The great garments are placed upon Jacob. You can go back and listen to that one. Two different kinds of ministry, two different religions. At the end of the day, one uh, well-known dogmatician, somebody who sorts out church teaching of the 19th century, said at the end of the day, there's really only two religions. There's a religion of the law and the religion of the gospel, or there are religions of the law, and there is the religion of the gospel. There are only two ways, the way of life, the way of death. There's no middle road. There's no third way. And that's uh, what you're going to see here again. Now, so two two churches, two ministries, two ways of living, two religions. Now you'll see here two marriages. In Revelation, it's, it's either the marriage between the Lamb and his kingdom, which has no end, or it's the marriage between the, the Babylonian... The harlot, the prostitute, the whore of Babylon in chapter 17, that's it. You're either yoked to one of these. In Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs, it's lady wisdom or lady folly. You're married to one or the two. That's that's it. Um, And this goes on and on. Uh, Luther has this famous... A passage in one of his famous writings about the the horse is even either being ridden by God or the devil. It's one of the two, and so also we have this. It's either this marriage that Jacob has, even though he has to be in exile and sacrifice things, or the marriage of Esau, which is quite fascinating here because Esau. The contrast. I got to be very careful here because the marriage of Esau. The contrast is. 
first happens at the end of chapter 26. Esau, we're told, he's 40 years old. He takes somebody from uh, Haith, from the Hittite. He takes a Hittite. And this is someone who makes life bitter, literally um, bitterness of spirit for Isaac and Rebekah. So Esau does this other marriage. He marries a Hittite and he makes life bitter, um, bitterness of spirit for his parents because of this. And again, Rebecca at the end of 27, the next chapter says, I loathe my white life because of the Hittite women. Um, this is a bad deal. So that's the other marriage. But notice there's another, I just said there's no third way here. It's kind of like, I don't know, the sons of, of Noah with Shem, Ham, and Japheth. There is like, there's there are two ways and then, of the first way, the way of life, it branches off into Jew and Gentile. Yefeth is like being grafted into the first way um, as a subset of the first way. There are really only two ways again. There are really only two marriages, but we see here, this is fascinating, and we're told this after Jacob's marriage. I think that's significant, the order of operation here. Jacob gets married first. I mean, the, the account of the marriage is told first in 28, and then before Jacob's ladder, and we'll talk about that after our break, Esau sees that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away, and that uh, Isaac blessed him and directed him, and, and even quotes these words, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, he went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives that he had, um, wives that are more in the in house, you might say, in lineage of Abraham in the family. This is fascinating. Esau first represents that other marriage, but then I think we get an indication here of the impact, the influence, the witness of God's people remaining true to God's marriage with them and uh, the effect that can have on others. This is a witness. He hears the word. Esau sees that um, Jacob's getting blessed and so on, and he also hears the word. And that has an effect on him. They will know you are Christians by our love. There's a witness there. He sees and he hears. And that has an effect, and his marriage reflects it. It it's a better marriage. Esau represented, like, of the Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Esau at first represented Ham. It's either Shem or Ham. Those are the two ways. But here is, like, the Yepheth way, and that is, wait, Esau can be grafted in all the same. He might have been uh, behaving like Ham, as it were. And yet here's um, how our Lord provides and grafts in, even though Jacob is the one that's going to receive, uh, be transmitting that blessing. And so this is our Lord's mercy, and I just want to stress here how he works through the means of blessing his people. So he works on people to bless other people. He gives gifts to the, the people of Shem, his one, the ones confessing, justification by grace through faith, and that has an effect. Word and sacrament, going to church, the witness of receiving God's gifts has an effect on others, even of that that other line, the unchosen brother, as we've talked about so many times, the prioritization of the Gentile, the outsider, and Esau here reflects something of 
again, kind of like Yefeth, who the blessing goes to Shem, and yet Yefeth is then, well, you can dwell in the tents of Shem. You can be grafted in too. And Esau's behavior here depicts that. And again, it's by means of, the Lord works by means of the witness of his people receiving his gifts, staying faithful to that marriage, even when they're in tough contexts, distant places, and so on, the exile of this world. Hey, we're overdue for a break. We're going to hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. We'll be back in just a moment to the Concordia Bible Institute podcast. In the meantime, I'd like to have you consider this question. What is most important in higher education? How do you prioritize all the knowledge to be gained at an institution of higher learning? Concordia University, Wisconsin, located on the shores of Lake Michigan in Mequon, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee, is an institution that is committed to excellence in learning, but at the same time realizes that excellence in itself is insufficient without development in vocation. We believe that God works through our vocations, our callings, in order to serve the needs of those around us. The mission statement of Concordia University puts it this way, Concordia University, Wisconsin is a Lutheran higher education community committed to helping students develop in mind, body, and spirit for service to Christ in the church and the world. You can learn more about the over 70 programs offered at Concordia by visiting the website, www.cuw.edu. And if you're benefiting from our Christ in Every Word podcasts, I encourage you to support this ministry by mentioning it to others and by offering your monetary support. Please consider supporting the Concordia Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on the Contribute page. And now, back to the podcast. study of Genesis chapter 28, probably embarking here on one of the most popular texts of Genesis. You'll see it already in the kiddos' books I mentioned earlier, Jacob's Dream, Jacob's Ladder. Why do we love this so much? I don't know. It's concise. It's accessible. It's um, a fantastic depiction of God interacting with uh, his people, one of of his, his chosen um, patriarchs to transmit the famous promise. I think we should probably start with the fact that Jacob is in an unknown place. He came to a certain place. He's on the road. He's wandering around as it were. He's, he's journeying, as all God's people are, pilgrimage. He's on a pilgrimage, and he comes to a certain place. And I love the language there. Deuteronomy is going to do this a lot. This The place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there. Uh, Jacob leaves Beersheba, the famous, I mean, that's a well-known, well of seven, right? This, these are like the, that well stuff is, that's the marks of the church. He's he's leaving familiar turf and he's he's in exile. Like I said, God gives the blessing and then see ya, you're out in the wilderness. And so he's in exile, as it were, and he, and he comes to a certain place, just, well, where exactly? And we'll learn, this is, okay, we're going to be, we'll call this Bethel. But he comes to a certain place. He's in exile, and he's just somewhere. And this place stuff just gets me thinking about the places. I think is deliberately ambiguous here. Where is he? Oh, a certain place. The point is that the Lord can be there in the anywheres of this pilgrimage. 
So he comes to a certain place. He stays there that night because the sun had set. And this is going to, I mean, we think of Abraham. We think of other places. The sun going down, it's dark. Abe sleeps in chapter 15, and then the Lord appears um, in a dream. There's some, you know, there's some echoes here of, okay, this is how he deals with the patriarchs. Adam was asleep when the rib thing happened. And, you know, you get this kind of, okay, this is something that is totally the Lord's doing here. The dream thing is, I mean, the dream, it's an interesting thing to think about all this. Joseph gets dreams and the other Joseph in the New Testament gets dreams and all of this stuff in dreams. Pilate's wife had a dream. Don't, you know, do anything with that righteous man. Well, he dreams. One thing about the dreams is that he's totally passive. He's totally, he's asleep. He's not bringing anything to the occasion. And that's worship in the Christian church. Our Lord does something first, and then we respond in thanksgiving. We're not bringing anything to the equation. Um, the Lord appears to Abram in chapter 12, and then in response, the Lord, uh, Abe builds altars to the Lord, calls upon his name, offers up sacrifices, and you know preaches sermons and so on. That's worship. So we're going to see how this, this certain place, and he's asleep, not bringing anything to the equation, and the Lord is going to do something in the midst of a dream. This is all very much worship stuff, and we're going to see this continuing in many and various ways here. So he takes one of the stones of the place. Well, this stone is like, okay, God can raise up stones. Uh, God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac. Um, This stone will be used later. We'll see he's going to pour oil on it. The Lord wants an altar of stones, unhewn, uncut. Let them be. Uh, We're going to see more about this later. But he takes one of the stones of the place. Again, all this emphasis on place. He puts it under his head, lay down in that place to sleep. Sounds a lot like Jesus in the boat. He's got the cushion. In the Gospel of Mark mentions the cushion. He lays his head down to sleep. We have all these kiddo prayers, don't we? Now I lay thee down to sleep. I pray the Lord my... We have all these... uh, This is just a... You know, it's almost like it's a picture of life as well that we want to rest in the Lord. And that's what we do at worship as well. So he dreams and there's this ladder. It's kind of an interesting word of the flight of steps. This There's a connection between heaven and earth. The top of it reaches the heaven. So one thing, I mean, that is worship. Jesus will quote this, won't he, or, or at least allude to it in John chapter 1. You'll see the Son of Man uh, coming on the clouds, um, angels ascending and descending. It's the Son of Man that bridges this heaven and earth business. In Christian worship is heaven on earth. Where Jesus is, there is heaven. So the angels of God are ascending and descending. It's interesting that ascending is mentioned first, isn't it? Ascending and descending. Now, why is that? Uh, Is this the Lord is drawing us up to himself? He continues to come down to meet us and bring us. Set your mind. You've already been raised with me. And I will continue to come down to you throughout the pilgrimage of this life. Jesus bridging this heaven-earth gap in himself. He is the ladder. The angels 
ascending and descending by means of the Son of Man. The Lord stood above it. Now, to stand sounds like feet, doesn't it? How do you see this? the Lord standing? And Jesus often standing, this language of standing, revelation, the significance of people standing where they are. There's contact with the ground. There's contact with this ladder. The Lord stood above it. You get a picture of how can the Lord stand? Why does he appear in this way, standing in this particular vision, these means? Does he stand among He walks in Eden, right? Does he stand among us? The Lord Jesus stood among the apostles with, with the Thomas incident in the upper room. He stood in their midst, in the midst of Christian worship. He stands among us in his called and ordained servants, standing in, their, in his stead and by his command. He stands in Christian worship among us. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And it's a fascinating promise. In some ways, it's kind of the first time the Lord speaks directly to Jacob. So we've had Abraham, we've had Isaac, but now it's Jacob's turn to hear this promise spoken to him. And as we hear this promise, there are, there are echoes here of all the promises previously spoken. So the dust of the earth and in you and the families of the earth. It's like Abe highlights from the, Abe promises, highlights from the Isaac promises. Now they're all combined and and dumped down to Jacob. Again, he didn't do anything. He didn't bring anything to the equation. The Lord baptizes an infant. Here are my blessings. Here's the promise to you. Jacob wakes up. Now it's time for the Christian life. Once again, we receive our Lord's good gifts, word and sacrament on the on the Sunday morning, we're totally passive. And now, strengthen us, O Lord, in faith toward you and fervent love toward one another. Jacob then arises from his sleep and says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. That's the kind of, the Lord is in this place. We don't know it in the cognitive ways that we know other things. Look at this computer right in front of me and this book in front on the desk and so on. The Lord is present in ways that transcend the simple senses. And that's very comforting because the senses aren't all that good and reliable anyway. <laughs> you get older and the eyesight you know, dwindles or the hearing goes or whatever the case. They're not perfect. And you can only grasp so much of the of the true thing, of the real deal, with your five senses. And yet, that doesn't mean that the Lord is not present. The Lord is in this place. Notice again the language of place, so that this extends to all places where our Lord has placed his name, where he promises to be present in word and sacrament. Surely the Lord is in, the, is in these, this bread and wine and water. It's connected with his word. He's afraid. How awesome is this place? It's none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Where these gifts are given, that is the gate of heaven. That is heaven on earth. That's the house of God. 
That's where the one church lives at the same time in both heaven and earth. That's the one house of God. So he takes the stone and sets it up for a pillar and pours oil on top of it. This is very much like Abe. In response, he sets up a place of worship. He calls that place Bethel, which means house of God. And Jacob makes a vow, even though it was named Luz, or Luz at the first. And he makes a vow now. This is in response. It's not like, hey, I'll vow this and I'll promise to do this if you then do something for me. The vows, I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Those flow from the Lord's prior activity. So he says, if God will be with me, notice he stays close to the word like we should be too. As it's preached and taught, he listened to that word. And he rehearses that word, he speaks that word, he meditates on that word, he orders his days and his deeds around that word. If God will be with me, because that's what he just said to me, and will keep me in this way that I go, of course we know the one who is the way, the truth and the life, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, oh, you will be clothed with Christ, who gives the living bread from heaven, so that I will come again to my father's house in peace. And boy, do these patriarchs rest with their fathers in peace. Now my eyes have seen, let me depart in peace. I've seen your salvation. Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give, I will give a full tenth to you. He tithes. This is a, what you get. What, what are these things to me? We give thee but thine own, whatever the gift may be. And so now he gives a tithe. He contributes to that house, the needs. It's an offering. You have the whole divine service here. Here's a tithe. Here's an offering. Here's a contribution to support this house, this place where God gives his word and sacrament. Here's a tithe for the ministry, the office of the holy ministry, to support pastors, to support those called and ordained to stand in your stead and by the command to continue to give out this word and sacrament in this place which you, where, where you have promised to be. What an amazing picture of not just, oh, one cool guy having a cool dream, but of the ministry of the Lord to, God, to his own people in his church of all times and places. All in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob's Ladder, great stuff. That's the time we have for today, but tune in next time, my friends. We'll talk about, hey, the next chapter (laughs) in due course. The mission of the Concordia Bible Institute is to provide Christ-centered Bible instruction from distinguished experts who teach Christ in every word of the Old and New Testaments to strengthen faith and spread belief in the one true God. Again, if you benefit from this podcast series, I encourage you to consider supporting the Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org and clicking on our Contribute page. Until next time, my friends, I'm Dr. Brian Gurman, wishing you all God's blessings in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.